but the, the dozen mm-hmm. records that my father brought back from the war um, really stay with me. Perhaps it's that thing where you you hear something when you're a child and, and it really uh, resonates very deeply with you and lives with you, um, in my case, for my whole life. Uh, and I still love those records. This is Essential Tremors. I'm Lee Gardner. I'm Matt Byers. The idea behind this show is to have musicians and other creators talk about songs that shaped who they are. We're not looking for favorite songs necessarily. We're also not looking for songs that they'd choose to take with them if they were stranded on a desert island. What we're looking for are songs that have significance to them. Songs that might have changed the course of their creative lives or their lives in general. That's a fine motorbike A girl could feel special on any such like Says James to Red Molly My hat's off to you It's a Vincent Black Lightning 1952 And I've seen you at the corners and cafes it seems Red hair and black leather My favourite colour scheme And he pulled around behind And down to Box Hill They didn't ride Richard Thompson is an English singer-songwriter whose work spans over five decades. Likely an influence on many of your favorite bands and musicians, his distinct and virtuosic guitar playing is unmistakable. While his technical skills as a player could be lauded on their own, it's the soulfulness of his playing, sometimes punctuated by an aggressive, visceral edge, that sets him apart from so many others attempting to pursue the same path. Thompson could also be credited with bringing Celtic and other traditional folk influences to bear on mainstream rock music through his work with his first band, Fairport Convention, in the 1960s. He's recently released a memoir, Beeswing, Losing My Way and Finding My Voice, 1967 through 1975. Then I give you my Vincent The first song Thompson chose as being formative for him was La Mer by Charles Trenet. La mer qu'on voit danser le long du golfe clair a des reflets d'argent. La mer des reflets changeants sous la pluie. La mer au ciel d'été. Confond ces blancs moutons Avec les anges si purs La mer Bergère d'azur Infinie 
This first song that I, that I chose uh, was one of my father's records. Um, my father, in World War II, uh, got stationed in in France. So he he went over with Montgomery, uh, General Montgomery, um, uh, on, on D-Day, and um, he stayed on. Uh, he ended up in in Antwerp, in Belgium, uh, for. A, a couple of years after the war, till actually forty-seven, uh, he, he was in something very uh, shadowy, um, some something called the SIB, which was a, kind of a branch of the military police. And I think it was a bit like uh, that film, The Third Man. I don't know if you've ever seen that film, um, where, where it's basically, but you know, post-war Vienna, and it's all drugs and contraband and, and murders and rounding up Nazis. And my father was involved in that stuff. But he couldn't really talk about it because of the Official Secrets Act. But but I digress. <laughs> so he brought back a bunch of records from the war, um, uh, mostly French records, uh, Edith Piaf, um, Jean Sablon, and uh, the record I've chosen is uh, one by Charles Freinet. This is, a, this is a big hit. It was a big record. Uh, and it's called La Mer, The Sea. Um, there was a translation of it uh, Somewhere Beyond the Sea by Bobby Darren, um, where they took the tune and basically did not transliterate the, um, the, 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 the words. Um, <clears throat> they really, really wrote a whole different song with a whole different sensibility. But um, I always loved the sound of, the, of this record. And uh, as, as I got to learn a bit of French at school, I, I, I tried to tra translate the lyrics and, and I thought, my God, this is so poetic. Um, this is extraordinary. I mean, for instance, there's a line in the song, um, uh, Berger d'Azur Infini, uh, uh, the, the Shepherdess of the Infinite Blue. <laughs> I mean, this is a pop song. This is like a number one history of France. And I'm thinking this is the most extraordinary poetry in this song. The, the whole thing is just this beautiful poetic images. And I was thinking, well, maybe you couldn't do this in the English language. Perhaps uh, people wouldn't accept something uh, with this level of poetry in it. Uh, you know, our lyrics tend to be um, a bit more um, straightforward, uh, a bit less imagery um, for the most part in popular music anyway. Um, but uh, as a budding singer-songwriter, you know, I, I always remembered this song and, and thought, well, that, that there's there's other places you can go uh, as a singer-songwriter. That there's that you can lean on the world of poetry. You can borrow poetry. You can borrow poetic ideas. You can borrow assonance, um, consonants. Um, you know, open vowel sounds at the ends of lines. All these all these kind of ideas, um, metaphorical ideas, symbolism, and, and you can you can jam some of these things into into folk song in, into popular song uh, sometimes so that this song was always an inspiration to me uh, as a place to go further um, that these, these are places you can do and you can borrow from other cultures um, although the music that I play is very much um, based on British folk traditions and, and rock and roll thrown in there as well um, uh, the, the French influence, I, I, I think, is, is, is quite strong in my music as well, although probably it's more subtle. But, um, you know, the, the, the dozen records that my father brought back from the war um, really stay with me. Perhaps it's that thing where you, you hear something when you're a child and, and it really uh, resonates very deeply with you and lives with you, um, in my case, for my whole life. Uh, and I still love those records. And... Uh, treasure them I, I don't have the originals anymore but uh everything's on digital these days so you can grab um la mer by Charles Trenet, uh and i recommend it to anyone it's such a wonderful record 
Uh, what age would you have been when um, you heard these, or was this something from your earliest memories? Well, it's it's from the year zero, really. Uh, I mean, consciously, maybe when I, I was four or five years old, you know, I started to just uh, look forward to the times when my, my father would put this record on. I, I couldn't ask to hear it. That, that was uh, that was a step too far. I was far too shy as a child to do that. But. Uh, you know, I look forward to the times when that record would be, would be put on and I, I could kind of dream. And, um, you know, some records sound like they were never actually recorded, they just exist. And for me, that's one of those records. You know, I can, I can never imagine actually people in a recording studio. And there's a whole choir on the record that comes in at the last verse, you know, lifts the whole thing to another level. Um, but I just can't imagine it. It just, it just exists already. You didn't have to record it because it was already there. I'm curious, are you aware of covers of your songs um, uh, done in other languages? Yes, there are some. Um, yeah. <laughs> yeah, always interesting, actually, uh, to hear cover versions of, of your own songs. Um, and I think uh, it's very acceptable to take liberties um, when, when you're doing a translation. Um, uh, and to, to really just, you know, use the tune as a vehicle for some of your own ideas as well. I mean, uh, you know, My Way, which is, a, you know, a massive hit, of course. Uh, but Paul Anker basically took a French tune, again, a French tune, and uh, put different words to it. And um, that worked pretty well for him. We had uh, Suzanne Vega on the show. Something you said brings her, the conversation I had with her to mind, which is um, she was talking about Bob Dylan and using a lot of imagery in writing, which is not necessarily what a lot of songwriters do today. Um, and mm -hmm. especially, you know, I mean, I'm thinking about, uh, you know, the, the 80s and 90s when, frankly, a lot of uh, songwriters wrote lyrics that weren't really necessarily supposed to mean anything or weren't supposed to be read literally. Mm -hmm. And frankly, that's fine. A lot of those songwriters, it's like, please don't try to write anything that I'm supposed to, you know, take anything literal from. That's that's <laughs> good. I'm good. Um, mm -hmm. But I'm curious, as someone who has, you know, been writing songs for a really long time and, and you know, many great songs, and and but they're songs meant to be legible, you know. These words are supposed to be there for you to understand them. Um, do you uh, appreciate or do you get something out of songs that are, sort of just that impressionistic there just to be sounds type of songwriting well as you say i mean it depends um you know i mean for dance music perhaps you don't expect too much more um th than something just uh you know describing movement or just describing you know sex or something uh, you know you know just very basic stuff <clears throat> but then you know that there are some great like Motown lyrics, uh, which is also supposed to be dance music. You know, "Dancing in the Street" by, by Martha and the Vandellas. You know, has a, has a good lyric. Um, as, as do a lot of Motown songs. Um, that the lyrics are some in some cases very thoughtful, very uh, very poetical, uh, very political sometimes. So um, you can shove all those dimensions into you know a basic dance song a, a dance rhythm um but you don't have to i mean uh, you know it's uh, it's acceptable to have something that really is just a pulse uh, and you put words to it that just sound good you know that they don't have to mean too much um that's okay you know that that really is okay Pour la vie.
The second song Thompson chose as essential to his formation as an artist was the traditional British folk tune, The Bonnie Bunch of Roses, played by Joe Haney. By the margin of the ocean One pleasant evening in the month of June when all the feathered songsters Their liquid nose to sweep As there I met a female And all our features were signs of woe Conversing with a young Bonaparte Concerning the bunny bunch of roses Okay, the second piece is uh, a traditional song. It's um, sung, it was sung anyway, um, still is sung in England, uh, and certainly Ireland, Scotland maybe a bit as well. Um, it's a song called The Bonnie Bunch of Roses. And it goes back to the Napoleonic era. And um, there are many songs, uh, traditional songs in Britain um, about Napoleon. Um, some for Napoleon uh, and some against Napoleon. Most of the ones for Napoleon uh, come from Ireland and Scotland where they thought it might, might be better to have Britain overthrown by the French uh, so that, that they could make a new deal or, or get independence uh, from, the, from, the, from England. Um, and then there's the, the more English ones that are actually uh, uh, anti-Napoleon. <clears throat> and uh, there are several songs that, that, that talk to Napoleon's son um, which are interesting, you know, saying, uh, you know, you saw what happened to your father, don't go down the same road. And uh, The Bonnie Bunch of Roses is, is really a song that, that's um, uh, about how wonderful the British Isles are and, and how that, 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 uh, that union should not be broken. And uh, it's what they call a big song. You know, there are traditional songs that everybody sings. Um, uh I, I was having a drink, you know, late at night with uh, Luke Kelly of the Dubliners uh, one night, and and, uh, and people are sitting around singing songs. And I said, Luke, you know, sing the, the Body Bunch of Roses. And he said, Can't do it. It's too big, too big for me. I can't sing that song. You know, uh, incredible respect for the tradition and for the weight of the song. And, and that's a song that uses. Um, you know, some wonderful imagery. Um, I mean, the, the Bonnie Bunch of Roses to, to represent, you know, uh, the, the four countries, you know, of, uh, of England, Ireland, Scotland, Wales. Um, you know, it, it's a wonderful Im image uh, in it, it, of itself. Um, and uh, when I think of, uh, uh, you know, how do you learn songwriting? How do you get ideas? How do you study the art of songwriting? I, I, I think, well, you know, the... The traditional music of the British Isles is, is a great place to start because um, it's all there. Um, you know, it's very spare. Um, every verse counts. Uh, verses that are superfluous to the to the, to the narrative uh, tend to get dropped over the course of, in some cases, hundreds of years. Um, 
And, uh, you know, the language can be very beautiful, in, incredibly poetic sometimes, uh, extraordinary images. Uh, and and uh, it's, the songs are very compressed as well. I mean, there's no wastage. You know, like a Hank Williams song, you know, there's, there's no lines that are superfluous to the emotion. And I think with the traditional song, um, there's no lines that are superfluous to the storytelling. It's just a wonderful narrative. Uh, and in many ways, um, the Bonnie Bunch of Roses is just one song um, that I can pick out from a vast um, tradition. Um, many, many songs uh, share the qualities of the Bonnie Bunch of Roses. Uh, and I chose a version, I, I, I don't even know if you can, you can find it, uh, the version by Joe Heaney, who was a wonderful, um, wonderful singer. Um, and, and he could... Uh, Sing a song that big. <laughs> he had the, uh, the 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 right gravitas to 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 deal with a song of that size. So that's the Bonnie Bunch of Roses. Well, and this is a this is a song that uh, the Fairport uh, Convention also recorded. Did, was there any trepidation about stepping into that a song of that magnitude? Well, I think there was. Um... It's a song that we recorded. Uh, it ended up on a kind of, um, you know, like a best-of album. I don't think we actually put it on uh, the record it was intended for. Um, and bizarrely, we were on an American tour, and um, we said, well, we'd love to record at Gold Star Studios in, in Los Angeles. So that's where Phil Spector used to record. You know, wow, that, that must sound great. Let's go in there and, and cut some tracks. So um, we recorded, I think, three tracks we, we're using... Um, uh, the, you know the engineer, um, the, the old Spectre engineer Doc, uh, who is an absolute amazing character, and um, stuff did sound amazing in that studio. It, things kind of jumped off the tape. You know things things sounded very loud in there. It's amazing, and uh, you know Swarb, uh, Dave Swarbrick, our fiddle player, um, sang it, and um, he didn't have any qualms about singing a song like that, a, sing, a song of that size. Um, I always had my doubts. But but Swoop seemed happy to sing it, and uh, I'm not sure our version really has the right weight to it. But uh, we tried. Well, I mean, it's pretty dramatic, so I mean, you, I I think at least you did your best. So we did our best for sure. Yes. Yeah, yeah. I'm really struck by that uh, th- that uh, idea that you just uh, discussed. The idea that if something doesn't work, it doesn't stick around, and the, the idea of these songs being sort of winnowed and pruned over, you know, in some cases, hundreds of years um, because of, you know, oral tradition and people singing them and altering them and, you know, tweaking them and surviving. And, you know, so at this point, they're pretty distilled and, you know, the people are people remember them because they're memorable. And as memorable as they're going to get, I guess. Right. Yeah. uh, You know, they are lean. I mean, the other thing that does happen is people half remember them. You know, at various points, and 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 then the song kind of splits into different variations, and some of the older songs. I mean, some songs going back to the sort of sixteen hundreds, maybe. Um, you might find twenty, thirty variations, uh, and people love to to put a local name in there. You know, like a local place name. Um, so, so they hear the song, but they think, you know, I'm, I'm going to make this more about where we come from. So there'll be a Scottish version, there'll be a Welsh version, you know, there'll be a West Country version. Um, and sometimes things just get misheard. Um, you know, the you know, you know, Matty Groves, quite a, quite a famous ballad. You know, is also known as Little Musgrave. You know, uh, Matty Graves. You know, there's, there's all these kind of variations um, from people half hearing, 
the name. So, you know, the, the plot tends to be the thing that, that is consistent. But uh, you know, the details and the place names can change. Um, but, you know, the, the, these songs are very lean. If you think how many people a song might pass through over 100 years or 200 years, uh, that's a lot of people. And uh, things inevitably are going to change, but usually they change for the better and the bad stuff disappears. Well, and, and the, 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 the people and the places are less important than the reason that people sing the song, right? The plot and, you know, the characters and the motivations and the reasons that people do the things that they do in the song. <laughs> but um, I, one of the things that really um, uh, struck me in your book was this sort of theme. And I mean, it's a, I guess it's a pretty obvious theme of you sort of doggedly sticking to um, Britishness, Englishness, um, not wanting to play, you know, um, you know, American, uh, uh, cover songs or not wanting to do more of those than than and and sticking to a more uh, english sound you know wanting to do um english mm. and and irish and scottish folk music and not you know go in another direction you know looking for that uh the source those roots rather than you know playing around with other roots um and you know mm. you you do a good job of explaining that but i'm wondering if you could talk a little bit about that at a certain point, uh, Fairport felt that we were uh, being rather secondhand uh, in our musical style, that we were taking American forms and we weren't contributing very much of ourselves um, in that process. Um, and we didn't want to be like, you know, a British blues band, a British uh, R&B band. Um, we wanted to be something a bit more original, something a bit different. We, we wanted to stand out as a band. Uh, um, and so we, we decided it would be a good idea to base our roots much more on the British tradition, on, on English, Irish, Scottish uh, traditional music, and blend that with rock and roll, uh, and blend that with, with um, electric music, amplified music, electric guitars and drums, all that stuff. Um, so that was the idea. And, and at the same time, we, we thought, well, this is something that's going to resonate more with us. Uh, if, if we can actually do this properly, that, then this is our homegrown music, this is our tradition. This is something that we can be proud of. This is something that, that perhaps will touch the audience as well, but the audience will recognize it and, and say, aha, the, the, you know, this is a reawakening of our culture. And we, we hope that the audience would embrace it. And to some extent they did, but it never became um, you know, that popular. It was never like chart music. It was always a bit of a, uh, you know, a cult, a bit of a sort of a side avenue of popular music. So um, that was really our ambition. It was really just, you know, A, to be original and B, to be uh, playing something that was, uh, that would reverberate more with, with us and with the audience. You know, I'm uh, originally from East Tennessee um, and yeah, I'm uh, from near the town of Knoxville. And of course, there's a Knoxville Girl is a traditional song from the Appalachia. Which is, of course, and I have forgotten the the, the etymology of all this, um, is uh, an adaptation of a traditional ballad that comes from England or Scotland, I forget where. Mm -hmm. So in a real way, you know, a lot of American roots music comes from, um, you know, English roots music and Scottish roots music. So it's all sort of bound up together. So, you know... Yeah. Um, in many ways, American roots are our musics, uh, are our, our, uh, your roots music. So, so thanks, I guess <laughs> I would have to say. Yeah, um, it's true. Yes. Um, 
it's just, uh, you know, uh, it's a more circuitous route, really, in a sense. Um, so much music survived intact in, in uh, you know, the, the, the Appalachian Mountains and the Smoky Mountains um, uh, fr from European culture, especially uh, British culture. Um, and, uh, you know, that became country music. And, and uh, so, so that was a huge arm of American popular music. Uh, so, um, yes, the roots are common. Uh, I, th I think we just wanted to short circuit that, that process a bit more and, and just grab it straight from, you know, the British tradition. Uh, and at that time, I mean, um, you know, British traditional music wasn't sung that much. Uh, some people thought it was dying out. Um, there was a lot of collecting going on in the sort of 50s and 60s, uh, trying to find what they thought were the last of the traditional singers um, so, so that uh, that music could be revived. So you had a a big revival in the, in the 50s, another one in the 60s, and you could say Fairport was another revival. You know, um, Taking Electric was bringing that music back to, to a wider audience um, in the late 60s. Um, is that music still important to you? Maybe that's an obvious question, but I'm curious. Um, well, no, it really is, and, and it's still um, a big root of what I do, um, uh, you know, melodically and lyrically. So, yes, it's very important. Well, enshrine the bunny bunch of roses. The final song Thompson chose as being crucial to him was With Drooping Wings by the English composer Henry Purcell from his opera Dido and Aeneas. Well, the next piece of music is uh, a piece of classical music. It, it's from Henry Purcell, uh, who some consider the greatest English composer. He's certainly up there um, with, you know, Benjamin Britten, maybe uh, Elgar, Vaughan Williams, um, but perhaps he, he's greater than all of them. Um, and he was a 17th century uh, British composer, and, and he wrote uh, this opera, called uh, Dido and Dineas, um, and he wrote it for a girls' school. I, I'm not quite sure the nature of this girls' school. It certainly wasn't like the school my sister went to, but, but um, <laughs> it must have been pretty a pretty amazing uh, girls' school. And uh, it's a short opera. It's a one-act opera, uh, and uh, he, he must have been on a very hot streak uh, that particular week or month or how long, long it took him to write it. Uh, it's a sublime um, opera, sublime piece of music. Uh, there are famous uh, passages uh, from this opera. Uh, there's the famous uh, Dido's Lament, uh, When I'm Laid in Earth, uh, which is fairly well known, which is a staggeringly good piece of music. Um, and after um, Dido's death, uh, I think the last piece in the, in, in the opera is, is this piece called uh, With Drooping Wings, which, which is sung by um, 
uh, by by Dido's attendants. And, and for me, this is, this is the closest music to, to heaven that, that I know of. It just sounds angelic. It sounds... I don't know if you've had that, those dreams where you're hearing some celestial choir in your, in your dreams, this incredible music of the spheres, this, this staggering harmony going on. Then, then you wake up and you sort of forget about it. But um, for me, this is like waking celestial music. Um, it, it's kind of sublime. Uh, it, 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 it's, um, it, it's, it's fugal. It kind of fugues. Uh, the voices come and go in, in different places and, and start and stop at different times. But it has th- this really transcendent effect um, it's a mournful piece of music, but it's a very transcendent piece of music. And, uh, you know, I've, 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 I think I've loved classical music for a long time, uh, since when I was a kid. And it's another thread for me um, of musical experience. And for me, uh, rather like jazz, I think it's a place where I go to learn about harmony, uh, to learn about music. Um, even if I don't play classical music, um, I can I can grab ideas from it. I, I can I can I can take a bit of this and a bit of that and and put it into what I do, and hopefully enrich what I do. Um, but uh, Henry Purcell, I, I just just kills me. I, I you know I think he had a fairly short life, and um, but but I think he was as, he was as good as anybody. Um, and and if, if I think sometimes you feel that uh, you have a composer or a, you know maybe a singer um, who speaks for you. Who, who sings the music, um, you know, exactly the way you would want to hear it. And for, for me, Purcell writes that way. He, he writes things that I think, wow, this is just absolutely tailor-made for me as a listener, that this is the experience, the musical experience that, that, that I want, and this man is delivering it. So that's Henry Purcell and the pieces with Drooping Wings, strongly recommended. There's a there's a um, a funny bit in your book where um, you, in one of your early jobs, uh, and I can't, at this point, remember um, what you were doing, but uh, you talked about um, uh, playing Purcell and other English composers, and your coworkers making fun of it a little bit. They they liked Wagner or something like that. <laughs> um, well, I, I worked for two German uh, designers. I, I was kind of apprentice as a as a <clears throat> as, as an art designer, and and we were making a lot of stained glass windows at the time. So, so I'd be left in the workshop uh, making the windows, and um, and uh, the, 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 there'd be a feed in the workshop from the record player. And um, uh, uh, Hans and Eberhardt, who were my employers, um, you know, loved um, <clears throat> German music all, all the way from top to bottom. You know, so they they, they, they Played a lot of Wagner, uh, lots of Beethoven, lots of Mozart. Um, occasionally, something more modern like Hans Werner Henze, which I really enjoyed. Um, and every week there'd be a run to the to, to the record library, you know, and they and they'd say, "Well, anything that you want to hear." And I said, "Yeah, I'd love to hear some Vaughan Williams or some Elgar." And they say, "Oh, that English sentimental shit." <laughs> <laughs> so um you know so that so they saw english music as, as overly sentimental and and in a way it is i think i think it actually is overly sentimental but but it doesn't mean i don't like it it doesn't mean it isn't actually great music in in other ways um so um yes i mean I, you know i grew up listening to um to Vaughan williams and elgar particularly um and a little later in life i, I got into benjamin Britten, who i also absolutely love um so they're, they're, for me these are like home composers you know um, you know, I, I love Beethoven. You know, I, I love Russian music as well. I, I love uh, Shostakovich, Stravinsky. Um, 
but uh, if I want to come, you know, metaphorically home uh, musically, then um, I, I might put on some some Elgar or some Vaughan Williams. Well, and I do think there's something to that um, that idea that I think that you're expressing a minute ago of that. Sometimes you just find something that's that speaks to you, you know, for whatever reason, and maybe mm. it's because it relates to your, you know. You know, it's a piece of your own country or your own culture, or it just happens to be the mm-hmm. right set of harmonies and melodies, and it just, it's, it, you know, it gets you, and that's it does. There's no arguing with that. So, mm. yeah, I, th- I think so. I mean, there's uh, something to be said for for that kind of familiarity. You know, that there's a kind of familiarity of. Uh, of the music, certainly, um, and uh, someone like Vaughan Williams was uh, using traditional melodies. Um, he, he was a great collector. He, he'd go out and collect folk songs, and, and then he would put them into um, into his compositions. Um, and uh, he also discovered that things like green slips. That's something we take for granted. You know, alas, my love, you do me wrong. You know, da 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 da. Um, and we would, wouldn't know that without Vaughan Williams. Uh, Vaughan Williams found that, and and his orchestration of it is the one that we think of. You know, he harmonised it, and uh, you know, set it for a you know, for, for a classical orchestra. And I think our familiar, familiarity with that with that song is is uh, thanks to Vaughan Williams. Um, and, and I think also, uh, you know, someone said that all British art, you know, which includes music. Um, uh, keeps referring back to the landscape. It, it, it's like there's always this kind of pastoral thing that kicks in. You know, you certainly hear it in Vaughan Williams. You're at Nelgar as well. Um, <clears throat> that, that you're always referring back to the landscape. So, so the landscape becomes a common theme. You know, that you can go, you go right back to Chaucer, and then then, then you go to um, Shelley, and uh, but then you, you go to to Purcell, and you go to um, you go to Constable or Turner, you know, and, you know, it's the same thing about the landscape. The, the, the landscape's this permanent thing that doesn't change that much. Uh, and, and it's a reference point. It's a common reference point all through the centuries. Where does it show up in your work, do you think? Ha, ha, ha. No idea. Um, <clears throat> I, I don't have perspective on that. Sorry. This has been Essential Tremors. Essential Tremors is produced by me, Matt Byers, and Lee Gardner. Essential Tremors is distributed by WYPR Baltimore. To get in touch, get more information, or buy Essential Tremors merchandise, go to EssentialPodcast.com. Thanks for listening.